0: Welcome to the first episode of Culture Wars, Spheres of Influence in International Relations. On this show, we talk about how countries' cultural activities, through sports, entertainment, and other avenues, are used to spread cultural influence across borders that ultimately affect the power balance between countries and international relations. I am Joralin Garcia.
1: And I'm Zoya Navaz, And we're hosting this podcast, sponsored by the Keck Center for International and Strategic Studies at Claremont McKenna College.
0: So, Soft power is pretty fascinating because people do not normally think of how cultural influences can be a gateway for a country to become more powerful through unconventional forms.
1: Yeah, people normally think about power in terms of hard power, like military strength or economic sanctions, but that's not what we are focusing on. We examine instead how subtle or not-so-subtle cultural exports can change people's perspective towards a country and build into that country's reputation.
0: And then that country can increase their soft power by their ability to attract and have their culture adopted beyond their borders, whether it's music, technology, religion, or whatever else they may be known for.
1: And thus, there may be a shift in the power balance among nations because of whose culture is more influential in what area.
0: Today's episode is focused specifically on how sports, using Japan as a case study, can act as one of those soft power avenues. From hosting to winning international games, training internationally acclaimed athletes, and using sports to distract from a country's political situation, these all factor into a country's reputation and national pride that can make them more influential.
1: We have an exciting guest today. He's a sports columnist at the Los Angeles Times who will talk to us about the Tokyo Olympics that was unfortunately postponed due to the COVID-19 pandemic, but nonetheless still holds significance and affects Japan's image on the world stage. So let's just dive right in with Mr. Hernandez.
0: Mr. Hernandez, why don't you give us a brief introduction of your work as a journalist?
2: Uh, Yes, I've been at the Times now for 13 years, uh, the first five of which I spent uh, covering the Los Angeles Dodgers, the local baseball team. Um, You know, my mother is from Japan, uh, my father is from El Salvador, so I speak Japanese and Spanish, which kind of lent itself to covering baseball because that's, you you know, between the three languages, that's... 90% 90% of the players, it feels like, so uh, ended up covering that for a while. Uh, the last five years I've been working as a columnist, just kind of floating around from sport to sport, uh, giving opinions and stuff. So I have covered, um, you know, I've been to Japan a couple of times actually for work, specifically, again, kind of mostly to cover baseball stuff. 20, in the summer of 2019, spent a little time, uh, you know, in Japan, again, kind of doing a year out from the Olympics type thing. So I'm a little bit familiar with, uh, with this subject.
1: So what kind of work did you do there, and do you have any Japanese contacts for sources and all?
2: Yeah, so the first time I went there actually was in 2017, in the fall of 2017. I went there for a week to go cover Shohei Otani, uh, who now plays for the Los Angeles Angels. Uh, And there were rumors at the time that he was going to be coming over the year after, So we figured, you know what, um, again, I'm probably the only American uh, covering baseball that could do this. So why don't we just go over there and try to get some, uh, you know, get ahead of this story and introduce this person to the American public. Um, You know, I have a lot of friends in the Japanese media who, you know, they came to uh, work here and cover Major League Baseball on two, three-year assignments. And so when they went home, I maintained, you know, contact with them. And they eventually helped me actually get to Otani's high school coach. Uh, And I didn't know it at the time, but this was a person who remained very influential in Otani's decision-making. And he actually was the one who told me, he was the first person to say this publicly, that, yeah, no, he's going, right? Um, At the time, there was still, I mean, even though we were expecting him to come to the United States the next year, we weren't 100% sure. And so, uh, yeah, so the first time was to do that. And then the last time actually I went was uh, in the summer of 2019. I went there to um david wharton who's our olympic beat writer he and i went over there to do basically where is tokyo a year out from the olympics and so the day that i got there though we didn't have we you know so we had like things set up with like the, the organizing committee right we met um you know we kind of met with some right some of the olympic sponsors just to kind of get like an idea of what was going on on the ground over there we visited some facilities um but yeah But then the rest of the week i was there basically just kind of uh, you know, building contacts, you know, I, we had dinner one night with somebody who works for one of these companies uh, that gets hired, right, by the organizing committee, a lot of this stuff is actually outsourced, right? So, you know, say the the golf venue or the baseball stadiums, uh, they contract outside companies, you know, to prepare these facilities for them. And so, you know, we met with some people from those types of groups who were given a tour of the national stadium, uh, the, right? where they're going to have like the opening ceremonies in theory and have the track and field events. Um,
0: Yeah, and a quick follow up to like the Olympics. Can you talk about how like you were supposed to go to the Olympics obviously before it was postponed but like your work as a journalist over there?
2: Yeah, so you know, yeah, that would have been last year. And honestly, um, you know, because a lot of the Olympics and this is part of the whole, what kind of gear, right, makes the whole machinery work is that um, it's an advertisement for the city, right And you know Tokyo obviously hosted the 64 games and a lot of the wonderful infrastructure that they have, right all the their very you know elaborate and precise subway system, a lot of that was built leading into the 64 games, right And so the world shows up there. a lot of those facilities are actually still, being used now they were so kind of ahead of their time and it was a great advertisement kind of for post-war Tokyo right Um, you know and really kind of put it on the path to have all the economic success I think that they had you know especially like in the 1980s Um, you know and I think that that was kind of the intent of it again um, given the fact that like you know that they're going to try to again to showcase their city that they were going to come up with new stuff right I mean there were all these you know rumors for a while about these like robots that they were going to have you know to help people with their luggage at the airport and stuff and you know that you would be able to you know that if you're at the stadium that you would you know say you order a drink and the robot would bring it to you or something and so I think that there was a lot of excitement among us just like okay well they're going to want to show put themselves in the best light and given how impressive they are even when they're not trying to show off I think a lot of us were just really excited about the prospect of getting to, you know, spend, you know, three weeks of the Olympics there. Um, Let's pivot to
0: like the importance of sports now. Sports is often a subject that is not really considered in international relations, but huge sporting events like the Olympics or like the World Cup and others can often contribute to shifting the power balance among nations. What do you think sports can do for a country's image or like their soft power or reputation on the world stage?
2: Yeah, I think um, t- it's kind of a two-faceted thing. One is the the image projected kind of, again, by the host nation, right? And, you know, so even teen, right countries that, say, aren't particularly good at sports might want to, um, you know, host a sporting event to kind of project a certain image out to the world. You know, uh, obviously the Olympics, the World Cup, um, not only that, but uh, boxing traditionally has been kind of used... By like dictators. You know, when Muhammad Ali fought George Foreman, uh, you know, Don King, who was the promoter at the time, he goes to Zaire, which just had a revolution, and uh, Mabudu is the dictator. And so he's thinking, you know what, like, I have a horrible reputation right now. Uh, I'm going to pay $10 million basically to put my country on the map and show what a great country this is. So countries go to great lengths a lot of times to kind of conceal the bad stuff. So you have that part, right? Is the the image of the, the, the host nation. And then I think that there's also though uh, kind of expression, I think through sport, right? Where, um, you know, if you think of Brazil, I mean, what do you think of? One of the first things I think most people think of is their soccer team. And I think a lot of Brazil's image, honestly, is kind of tied to its soccer players. You know, again, globally, um, you know, people think of the United States. You think of people like Muhammad Ali. You think of people like Michael Jordan. I mean, athletes a lot of times come to kind of represent who countries are. You know, and that's kind of the interesting thing, I think, about these Tokyo games is, you know, Japan traditionally has not been very good at sports over most of modern history. And has kind of really kind of focused on the, okay, we're going to showcase our city side of things. What has happened, though, I would say in the last 20 years is that the ambitions, the sporting ambitions of the country have started to gradually change, you know. And now you have, again, you know, players like Otani and Yu Darvish and before him, you know, guys like Ichiro who, who came over here and did really well in baseball and really kind of competed, not just played in the major leagues, but really kind of competed at the highest levels of that. You know, Japan is also, was looking forward to kind of maybe showcasing, you know, not just their cities, but also how their cultures and their ambitions have changed through how their athletes, right, perform. Uh, and what was really kind of interesting to me, I guess, you know, there is a basketball player right now who plays for the Washington Wizards in the NBA. His name is Rui Hachimura, uh, but his father's from Africa, right? And again, you know, 20 years ago, um, even though they might have cheered him on, they would not have been like, he's one of ours, you know, and to kind of go from that. And I was really, again, in, in, especially when I went back you know, this last time in 2019, Hachimura was just breaking into the NBA. Um, And the degree to which they viewed Hachimura as Japanese to me was like really surprising again, kind of as somebody who was more familiar with that country, the way it was in the eighties and nineties. I really, you know, the last time I went to Japan before 2017 was in 1998, right after I graduated from high school. And then, um, and so I was, in that sense, I was really surprised to see how much society had changed. And now, you know, you have somebody like Naomi Osaka, the tennis player, um, who actually at a fairly young age moved to the United States, yet they consider her Japanese now. I think this was going to be an Olympics in some way, or, you know, and it still will have a chance to be that for kind of the Japanese to kind of showcase through sport you know, um, also not just right in in terms of, hey, we're, we're more than just people that build these great facilities, but we're also a country that can produce these types of athletes with these types of personalities and showcase, you know, these aspects of our culture.
1: Yeah, so while we're like already talking about Japan, host countries and all of that, what's like the opportunity the Olympics provided Japan when they've already hosted Olympics three times in 1964, 72 and 98. So what's new this time around?
2: Yeah, I think that, you know, um, kind of this idea of Japan as like an economic super superpower is probably not what it was before, right? It's certainly not what it was, like, say, like in the 1980s. And if anything, now, when we talk about like kind of global economy, right, even in, right, we talk about Russia, we talk about China. Japan has kind of been replaced in that sense. But again, like I think this was going to give them kind of this uh, opportunity to maybe showcase their ingenuity again right um you know what was really interesting to me was uh in the i believe it was kind of in the bidding for the 2026 world cup part of the bid was actually japan's bid was not just that they were going to host the olympics but that they were going to create this thing where you would say uh, say take the rose bowl right so the, the united states would be playing a game you know in japan and what you would be able to do though is put these um panels on the field at the rose bowl get a live crowd in there and they could they were going to you know uh recreate in virtual reality the same game there basically kind of like have holograms kind of recreating the game there right which is like nuts and again like so i'm guessing that was kind of part of the intention right is to like showcase japan in this way probably that's like hey this is a country that you want to invest in this is the one country that you want to visit again right? Because again, I just think that over the last couple of decades, uh, you know, the feelings about, you know, Japanese ingenuity probably have, have declined to a certain extent.
0: Yeah, that's very true. Now that you mention it, like Japan used to also rely on soft power, not just through economic exports, but through cultural exports like anime and manga. Is Japan looking for a boost in soft power? Since they're not leading anymore in these industries, do they feel that they are possibly being like threatened by like the rising K-pop and the rising K-drama, so they need to re themselves again?
2: You know, you, it's interesting that you bring up, and I'm going to maybe take this in a slightly different direction here, right? But as far as like the, the anime, uh, manga culture there, uh, the influence that that has had on sports, I think is actually, it's really affected the way the Japanese view sports, right? Um, you know, and I wrote a column about this, I think it was the day before Otani pitched his first game here. And I was writing how, and I wrote how basically that it made complete sense that a guy like, Sh- so, you know, usually in baseball, pitchers pitch, and even when pitchers are forced to hit, they usually can't hit at all, right? And a position player, a hitter can't pitch at all, right? Because the skill sets are so specialized. Now, Otani does both, and he does both. When he was in Japan, he was the best pitcher and he was the best hitter in the league. Um, you know, and I wrote about how a guy like that could actually only come out of Japan, right? at this particular time and the reason was because actually I think because again their comic book culture right in Japan they've seen somebody pitch and hit before he was a cartoon character <laughs> but it happened right um, you know the, the one that really kind of had uh, international an international impact was this uh, comic book called Captain Tsubasa. and it was it follows this young soccer player right As he's starting you know he's elementary school age and eventually he becomes like the best player in the world. Now, this thing got translated into like Spanish and Italian and stuff. It got exported to like Latin America and into Europe. And like, I think that that cartoon had a huge impact in the way the Japanese view soccer. And I think that, you know, the first um, soccer, Japanese soccer players who went over to Europe, right, which is where the highest level of soccer is played in the world, the first Japanese players to go over there were attacking players. And I think that part of this had to do with the fact that, again, the Japanese had seen a Japanese guy be the best player in the world. It wasn't a cartoon, but they had seen it, you know, and the Japanese like love like this concept of like genius, right? So like all these comic books, there's always kind of like this magic involved. And even like in that soccer comic book that I told you about, you know, these guys all have weird signature shots and stuff. And the possibilities are so kind of like open there. Um, you know, and I think that's why people that admire athletes, right, is that they are people who never really had to compromise their dreams in a way, right, and especially those people at the pinnacle are getting to kind of live out these, the same dream that they had when they were seven, eight years old, they're getting to kind of live out now. And, you know, again, in the case of these Japanese athletes, a lot of times I think that they you know, those dreams, uh, manga culture actually helped shape that a lot. So their ambitions now are, you know, more than just, hey, you know, we would just want to host the games and do a great job hosting it. But, you know, and what was really big too was, you know, the Major League Baseball started something called the World Baseball Classic, which is where they're trying to kind of make a World Cup of baseball. And Japan won the first two champ, right? They won the first two tournaments. And so now all of a sudden they get it in their head, like, hey, like we're actually really good at this, right? So Um, how they view themselves through kind of that sporting lens, I think has really kind of changed also their image of like what they can like accomplish, you know, again, sport kind of becomes a reflection of, you know, identity and of, uh, you know, ambition.
1: Yeah, so that's actually very interesting, the connection between anime and sports in Japan. And these foster a sense of national pride to play these sports. There also seems to be rivalry among countries in taking home the trophy to a game, the most gold medals, winning streaks, and as such. So you mentioned this a bit, but why do countries care so much about winning sports? And what does this say about the political consequences of sports?
2: Yeah, I think, hmm, I mean, it does like instill like a sense of pride, like other things don't, you know, stuff like politics and government, it's a little bit too abstract. Again, sports is just like, it's such like a common touchstone, something that I think a lot of people can like relate to. You know, I, I think it goes both ways, though, right? Like you said, like it, it, when they should be unhappy, this thing makes them happy, right? I mean, Argentina, if you look right there, they won their first World Cup in 1978. I mean, you know, that's probably like one of their darker periods of their history, right? They're under like a dictatorship and, you know, yet they win this thing and now everything is kind of like, hey, like we are the country that produced this team, right? You know, our best athletes are kind of reflections of, these athletes represent kind of our honor or in some ways, right? Our values, our characteristics, you know, um, you know, you see this a lot like in boxing, right? Especially like, you know, again, Mexico and their boxers, right? They're very proud, not just the fact that the guy wins, but it's how they win. That to me is what's interesting too, right? It's kind of what is valued, be- the difference in values between the countries. You know, Brazil is actually at like the one country where, you know, a coach can win a big tournament and still get fired for playing ugly. Right. Because it's not just okay to win. You need to play beautifully and you need to. It has to be a joyful experience. Um, Whereas in Italy. Right. They love the one nothing victory. Right. You know, put 10 guys behind the ball, frustrate the other team, one counterattack, boom, boom, one nothing. And that's to them perfect. That's their idea of perfection, you know. And so, again, I think it kind of reinforces these ideas of like kind of national identity and what we have. And you see it too, again, right? Certain countries, they value kind of the individual athlete more. Some countries, they value, you know, teamwork more. And I think a lot of these things are kind of expressions of, you know, kind of something deeper that connects all of us.
0: Yeah, and you sort of touched upon, like, sports as entertainment to distract against, like, the government, like, using Argentina as an example. So, like, how do you think, like, patriotism in sports helps the government promote their agenda?
2: Yeah, like, I would argue, I mean, it's it's, like, you know, and it goes both ways too, right? I mean, sometimes a sport will use patriotism to sell itself. Um, you know, I think baseball is like a good example of this, the NFL too, where, uh, especially baseball, just because, you know, people probably ordinarily, just like, would you know, fewer people are kind of watching it, but the one thing baseball hangs on to, we're America's pastime, right? So, you know, opening days next week, and we're going to see ballparks around the country they're going to unfurl these huge american flags that cover the entire outfield and they're trying to sell to you we are america's game you know so if you're an american you need to watch baseball because this is what connects us this is what connects you to people that lived in this country 150 years ago this is the one constant that you have it's baseball but you it definitely goes the other way too where right? Things can be failing, but you can point to, again, this team that like represents these ideals of this country, right? And, this, and you're going to see a lot of this in the Olympics, right? It's like, you know, especially if it's like some kind of underdog team, right? Some team or some individual that's not supposed to win. And then you're going to hear about how like this person embodies the spirit of country X. And so, yeah, you're back home and you see like, well, he won, right? And these, these things are like metaphors, right? So you think like, well, if he won, he was able to kind of uh, you know, conquer these significant obstacles. Well, maybe I can conquer the obstacles in my life. You see that, right? I mean, there's, you know, your local team goes out and does like something tremendous. Like, and you go out to work the next day? You feel that buzz around you. People are like happy, right? They get inspired kind of by these things. And that is one of the reasons like you watch sports is because like every now and then you'll see something kind of ridiculous where somebody is able to, again, pull, make something out of nothing. And those are those cases where it becomes more than just a sporting event, right? It becomes something that kind of like inspires people. And, you know, so yeah, like in in, the, in cases like that, baddest things are going in the government. You know what? We had LeBron James and LeBron James is a great basketball player. And he seems like a really good guy. And he's opening schools and he's starting voting drives. And you know what? As an American, I can be really proud of like LeBron James. You know, LeBron James grew up with a teenage single mother and was able to get to this point and whatever. If he can make it, well, maybe I can too.
1: Yeah, so you talked about values and how you win in sports. So we want to kind of pivot to Russia for a bit. Um, Russian ha- athletes have been banned from representing Russia due to doping scandals. And they've only been allowed to compete in Olympics as neutral athletes. So what do you think is the effect of athlete behavior banning countries' athletes? And, you know, what do you think, how does it affect a country's reputation on the world stage?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, The concept of like, uh, you know, doping in sports is obviously like one where there's so much money now. And this is kind of where it gets a little bit like, okay, what are we actually watching here, right? Um, And the thing is, you don't know. The dopers are usually gonna be ahead of the testers because there's more money in that, right? I mean, if you're, you know, right now, the biggest contract in baseball is like, you know, in excess of $400 million, you know, Um, if you can, right, take this thing and, right, uh, do it under like a certain, the supervision of an expert and not get caught um, and make $400 million, like would you do it? Probably, you know? Um, you know I think with the, and I, and I think my guess again, is that, right, the way they view, the Russians view American doping, again, is also kind of like the way they view us, right? Is that these people are hypocrites, right? They kind of selectively, you know, enforce the law, you know? um you know the thing with the with the russians and and kind of previously like the east germans what is a little bit different there is that it's kind of the systemic doping right it's not individuals kind of going out and finding their own like pharmacists so to speak this is kind of the you know at a national level kind of happening right which does lead you to you know i mean again I'm, i'm saying this as an american whatever but like you know um i do think that it kind of points to again you know russia kind of you looking at sport specifically kind of to control people right in that okay we need our teams to do well as a country we need our teams to do well we need our athletes to do well to instill national pride you know i because I, I think here honestly sports is just another business right it's no different than coca-cola or walmart or whatever else we do and it's just another you know uh, arm of the economy you know And whatever, it's kind of happening and they kind of let it go, whatever. But I don't really think that the government is like looking at, okay, well, you know what, we need our basketball team to be really well, you know, be doing really well to kind of distract from all these problems, right? Whereas, you know, again, the former East Germany, Russia, uh, Cuba is another country, right? Um, They necessarily haven't had doping scandals, but the Cuban government is, uh, you know, heavily involved in athlete development, right? Where they'll get the most talented elementary school kids and put them through a school with the whole purpose of like, you know, having, attaining international glory, you know, so again, to make people feel better about themselves. Um, So yeah, like, I think in a case like that, you know, the, the, the doping thing is always hard because, you know, on one hand, I don't think it's something that's ever gonna be cleaned up. And so, you know, is part of winning a gold medal just being able to avoid detection? Well, that's kind of like a crappy way to look at it, right? So, you know, there are some people that say, you know, and I went through a certain time for sure when I thought, Uh, to hell with it let anybody do whatever they want right because you can't stop it anyway what's the point of enforcing it you know you because you can't um but yeah as long as we're going to have these rules about doping and, and again if it's being imposed at a you know at the level of a you know a national government i don't think you have any choice but to you know disqualify like the entire country or at least you know prevent the athletes from competing under that flag
0: yeah, that's so interesting that we can see like the intersection of politics and sports and like doing whatever it takes to win just to instill like national pride. It's really amazing. Like we don't really think about these things. We don't think about the larger consequences of sports in international relations, which is why I think our um, conversation today was so productive when we're thinking about these spheres of influence and how really like sports does have a lot broader consequences than we typically think. So just we just want to say thank you for sitting down with us and for sharing with us your expertise in these topics. And we're sure that listeners will think about sports in a slightly different way now as part of this broader cultural sphere of influence.
1: Yeah, it's definitely been a very interesting conversation. And we really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. And we will definitely keep up with what happens with the Tokyo Olympics. Thank you again.
2: No, thank you for having me on. Culture
0: Wars podcast is sponsored by the Keck Center for International and Strategic Studies. And the music is brought to you by Kevin McLeod at The Incompetent Tech with the song titled Industrious Ferret. I am Jorlin.
1: And I'm Zoya. We hope you enjoy today's episode and continue listening next time.